I was telling the 9am communion that I have a mental folder uh, for passages, certain passages in scripture, and that mental folder has the title, Only Read This While Eating Cake. And this passage goes in that mental folder. Of course, it's Lent and I can't eat cake, but that's where I'm assigning it. It's hard, isn't it? I don't know about you. I didn't find that a particularly easy passage to sit and listen to. In fact, if I were to caricature a kind of fire and brimstone churchy passage, I would do something like this. Maybe you haven't been to church for a while and you've come today, and my goodness, here was that reading. What happens to me when I read passages like that are three things, and I'll share them with you and hope that maybe one of them might connect and we could help one another through it. The first thing that happens as I read that text is that it is bizarre to me. It's strange and I don't really understand it. I find it confusing and mysterious. So when I first read it, I'm just baffled. I don't really know what's happening. That's the first thing. The second thing that happens is as I read it, my natural inclination for some reason, which might be a terrible reflection of my personality, is to filter everything in that text down to some key lines, such as, I will strike her children dead. And that's all I can see as I read the text, dark, hard, difficult lines that I pick out, and I make that text a frightening, terrifying, hard text from which I want to recoil. And then the final thing that I do is that as I read that text, I I notice that there is a telling off in the middle of it. I don't know if you hear that kind of slightly ranty bit. And my natural inclination, again, is to be the person being told off. So to go instantly to that place where I am the wrongdoer, where I am covered in guilt and shame. That means that I'm sort of losing the text a little bit. I'm I'm sort of not letting go of it very easily. So, I think the important thing to say about this text is that not just what it is and what it has to say for the church, but there is something about how we read it together that's important. Revelation is a particular type of book, and we need to read it in a particular type of way. So as we begin, we're going to start by thinking not just what does it say, but how does it say it. The first thing to note about Revelation is that it was never intended to be a private Bible study. It was never intended to be a book that you took into your room with a cup of tea early morning, if you're that kind of person, and read by yourself and understood instantly. It was intended to be a text that was read to a community, read to a church, and we were meant to study it together, to meditate on it together, to wrestle with it together. It is a community text for community theology. So if you don't understand it or your own brilliant good you're in the right place you are doing the right thing we are gathering together and we are going to go through it together which is what was intended all along the second thing to say is to watch as we're reading the scriptures watch the balance of how we read it watch what we filter watch what we edit i say that to myself before anybody else So notice that, yes, it does say some really difficult, challenging things in this text, and we will talk about them, and we cannot get away from them. But read the beginning of that text again. Read how the letter starts. I know your deeds, that you are full of love and faith and service and perseverance, and these things are even greater than when you began, is what the letter says. This is not a letter to a community who Jesus despises, This is a message to a community held in his love. 
Notice how we read it, the balance of things, the love and the challenge. We're going to look for both of those as we go through. Finally, notice who the text is written to. Sometimes, because I'm so quick to sort of feel guilty and feel ashamed and feel caught out and think, you must be telling me off, it must be for me this telling off, I miss some other things in there. Go to verse 24 if you've got that in front of you. Can you see that? This isn't a particularly impressive line and not something that we would necessarily want to meditate on for ages, but I really, really want us to notice it. The words are, now to the rest of you. Now to the rest of you. This letter is not written to some amorphous group. It's written to different groups. This message is coming. Some people need to hear that challenge and some people need to hear the challenge that says, to the rest of you. Sometimes when we listen to scripture, we need to hear what is really difficult, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we need to know that there are words of encouragement coming to us, and our job today is to listen and allow what is important to resonate, remain, and sit with us. That's the invitation as we go through this text today. This is a message to the church in Thyatira, or maybe Thyatira. Maybe I've been saying it wrong all along. Thyatira, let's say. And that's the probably least known of the seven churches that are written to in the book of Revelation, and yet they get the longest letter right in the middle of it. It's not known for its military prowess, perhaps as Sardis was that we heard about last week, the unconquerable Sardis. That's not what Thyatira is known for. It's known for its manufacturing. It produces and smelts bronze and copper, which might explain the beginning of that letter. See, I stand with feet as burnished bronze, a reminder that the Son of God is Lord over that city and not the Roman gods who other people worship there, picking up allusions to their industries, as so often these messages do. Thyatira is famous for some other product though. Perhaps you will have heard of it in the book of Acts because Lydia, the first person who converts to Christianity in Europe through Paul, who then invites her back to his house, becomes one of the first leaders of the church. Lydia is from Thyatira and she is a trader, if you might remember this, in purple linen. And that's what Thyatira makes. They make linen dyed with dye that they make themselves and they have become rich and wealthy making that linen. There's not just industry there, though. There's another aspect to the life of the community, which is that if you are part of that manufacturing society, you are also invited, encouraged, almost obliged, to belong to a trade union or a guild. Now, these trade unions aren't sort of, you know, shouty bastions of socialism. They are pseudo-religious kind of cultic places where people engage in pseudo-religious practices and alongside those pseudo-religious practices they engage in very sexually immoral behaviour, behaviour that has no limits, behaviour that has no boundaries, behaviour that has the potential to be abusive, behaviour that does not frame itself in love and kindness. Into that context, Jesus sends his message to the church in Thyatira and says, you are to be people of light. You are to live as a church of light. 
And as we hear what the Spirit is saying to that church in that context, so we this morning are invited to say, how are we also called to live as people of light? And how in this complex, difficult, wrestly text are we going to hear the call to light? The first call, I think, is to hear that people of light are people of discernment. People of light are people of discernment. The letter makes reference to someone called Jezebel. Jezebel is a real person in the church community of Thyatira, but this is a nickname for her. The nickname comes, we'll know perhaps, from Jezebel in the Old Testament, the wife of Ahab, who led the people of Israel away from the worship of the one true God into worshipping other gods, Baal and um, Asherah, goddesses, not true worship of the one true God. So this Jezebel is a prophetess in Thyatira. She has found her way as a member, a member of the church. And what she's doing is encouraging people in that church to compromise. And the way she's encouraging that compromise is to say, you can be followers of Jesus Christ and all that that asks of you, all the structures and values and hopes that that asks of you. But you can also, if you like, be a full and participative member in these trade unions. You can hang out there, you can have all the sex you want with whoever you want, you can eat food sacrificed to idols, and it doesn't matter. Even more amazing, because you have the light of Christ in you, lucky you, you can do anything you want and it won't hurt you. You are free to mess around, basically. What the message is saying to the angel in Thyatira is, this is profoundly dangerous a profoundly dangerous way to live. And the church is in its openness and tolerance and willingness to let anything go, risking its own well-being and its own safety. The church is not demonstrating any level of discernment. What the message is calling then the church to do is to listen and pray And not simply allow anything to be okay, but to say, what is good here? What is holy? What is full of love and mercy and respect and kindness? What brings fruit of joy? What allows other people to flourish? This is the discerning framework that is put over the church. And it's the same discerning framework which is asked of us. Now, I don't know about you, but I have no, no real familiarity with pseudo-religious cults and sexual licentious practice. I just, that's not something that's come into my life. I don't encounter that very often. If you are involved in that, I am voyeuristically interested in hearing about it after the service, but I'm yet to discover someone who will tell me that. I do, though, know the need for discernment. I know the ongoing need for discernment in our churches I know it because even in the best, thriving, good churches seeking to do well, we can find that power can get a little bit unstable or we can make decisions that can lead to spiritual abuse. We can make decisions that aren't honoring to God, even with the best will in the world, which is why not just your leadership, but every single person in the church needs to be someone who is a person of discernment, rooted in the word of God, living out of that framework of love and kindness and respect and faithfulness 
so that we as one body make wise decisions about how we go forward. We need discernment too because although I might not be worshipping the Roman god Apollo Tyrrhenaeum, I think his name was for Thyatira, I can worship other gods. There are other gods of the world that I find incredibly alluring and I am tempted to worship all the time. Be they gods of money, just that little bit more. Be they gods of security rooted in money. Gods of fame, celebrity and acclaim. Gods that tell me that what I want is the most important thing, consumerism, individualism, all these gods are speaking to me all the time and I need the discernment that only comes from following Jesus Christ to navigate then through those things. And finally, we need the discernment together because God is speaking through his Holy Spirit. God is calling us on. He is calling us as a church community to seek his will in all sorts of ways. Where will we plant a church next? What will a theological college look like? How should we serve this community together? God is calling. And so we need to be people who can discern where he is calling us. When we baptise Faith, we don't give her a block of right and wrong answers to everything for the rest of her life. We simply say we promise to give you this framework, which we pray will guide you as you're called to make decisions in the complex business of living. We need to be disciples who are rooted in the word, in prayer, in the spirit, in community. It's why we might invite you to have a mentor, encourage you to be part of a connect group. It's why we encourage people to serve and to be involved because discipleship shapes discernment. People of light are people who can tell the difference between good and evil, between what is acceptable and what is not acceptable, between what is flourishing and what is withering. And we are called to be those people. So people of light are people of discernment. But notice then that some of these people in Thyatira are not behaving the same way as others. Now to the rest of you. Let's go to that verse. Now to the rest of you. What's clear from this message is that some parts of the church are totally beguiled by this message of Jezebel. They have gone over to that side. They are totally following that way of thinking. But some people are not. Some people are resisting that. Some people are making the decision not to absorb that teaching. And that's coming at some personal cost to them. It's not that they get to sit comfortably, self-righteously, knowing that they've made the right decision. If they don't participate fully in those trade unions and everything that goes with it, everything that happens at the Guild, if you remove yourself from that, you are potentially damaging your capacity to earn money. You could be passed over by people. You could be overlooked. You are taking a significant risk in choosing to live another way. And maybe you know that too. Maybe in your working situation, you've experienced that, that you've chosen to live another way and you've been passed over for a promotion or you've been isolated or overlooked. Maybe you know those feelings. What the message for the rest of them is, and maybe this is for you, is to hold on. That's what it says. Hold on to the end. 
Hold on if you're disappointed or worn down or wounded. Hold on if you're sick of church. Hold on if you're out of faith. Hold on if you're dry and weary or bored. Hold on if you're heartbroken and lost. Hold on if you're unwell and you're frightened. Hold on. I find that when I'm invited to hold on something I don't find easy or glamorous or particularly appealing, something that doesn't seem as heroic sometimes as other aspects of faith, when I'm invited to hold on, there are two temptations that rise up in me. And the first temptation is that where there is something difficult and I don't want to hold on, I want to destroy it. I want it out of my life. I want to walk away or I want it gone. I want it done. And sometimes in life there are things we do need to walk away from. So please don't hear me say you should stay in abusive relationships or anything like that. But there are times where we're called to hold on, aren't we? And the temptation is to say I don't want to. It's too difficult. I want it gone and out of my life. But the message here from Jesus is that it's not our job to destroy. It's his job to decide what goes and what stays. Hear that in the letter where he says, I will destroy these things. Our job is simply to endure and to keep going. And the other temptation I have when I'm asked to hold on is to feel as though it's just me on my own, desperately clinging on by my own strength, by my own desperate desire, by my fingernails. And holding on is just this exhausting work. This letter reminds us, this message says, you are not holding on alone. You are holding on to the one who is holding on to you. He promises his morning star, it says, which is a kind of code for his very self, his presence with us. You are not alone. You are not having to make it through with your own stamina but by the very grace and the strength of God. Maybe you need to hear that again. If you are holding on today, you are not alone in that. He is with you. People of light, hold on. The morning star imagery that comes in this passage is a little bit opaque to me too. I don't necessarily resonate with that. But this is a reference to two things The morning star is the kind of first star, the stars of creation, those that are there at the beginning of the world. And then the morning star referenced in the New Testament about Jesus, capital M, capital S, the morning star is referencing the new creation, the new world that is to come, the world that is full of love and kindness and peace and mercy, where there is no more mourning and no more suffering. And what this text is saying is that the people of Thyatira have this particular vocation to be the morning star, just as Christians all share that vocation. And by that it means to be the signs of the new world that is to come, to live now as if the new kingdom is here, to be people of light in a world of darkness. That's the vocation. And I think about that as I watch the news today and I watched the destruction in Vanuatu and saw 90% of homes utterly destroyed in the capital there, countless lives lost, we don't know. And to know that to be a person of light is not just to send aid there, but to ask some difficult questions about why cyclones like that of increasing force, of increasing destruction, of increasing power are happening? What are the root forces of greed 
and acquisition that drive us to treat the planet as we do, that drive us to consume more than is available, that drive us to alter forever the climate in which we live to the detriment most often of the poorest of us. To be people of light is to ask those questions. Today, recently, just in this last week, I watched a Channel 4 um, expose of Yarlswood Detention Centre. I don't know if you saw it. That's a kind of secret detention centre for asylum seekers and refugees, people who've come from some of the most dangerous, difficult, challenging places, people who, even if their applications have been denied, have come because they do not feel safe, because they've experienced some suffering, some pain, some terror that has led them to flee their homes and these people find themselves locked up like criminals, treated like animals, abused and disrespected for indeterminate amounts of time, and we know nothing about it. People of light ask, why is this happening? People of light say, not in my name. People of light challenge the inhumane treatments of others. And then we hear of people who are driven to suicide because benefits that they relied on because of disability or hardship or sorrow or difficulty in their life have been cut in the name of austerity, while other people hoard money with impunity. People of light challenge that. People of light say this is not the way of Jesus Christ. And we could, if we wanted, feel overwhelmed by that, couldn't we? We could think, well, how can I possibly resolve all these things? How can I possibly fix everything that's dark and wrong with the world? I can't. And it makes me want to give up. But the call is not to fix everything ourselves, but to be a people where justice and love flow out of us, where it beats in our veins. So what we do naturally begins to change the world around us. To be people of light is to change the atmosphere around us. So as I think about those situations, I think also of the Christians in Australia, Christians who stage sit-in after sit-in after sit-in in government offices to protest against the illegal detention of refugee and asylum seeker children in what are effectively concentration camps in islands of Australia. They're church leaders who've been arrested 65, 70, 80 times. They've been strip-searched and humiliated, but they will not stop until light comes into those places and children are released from detention. And I think about Christians in Egypt when all those demonstrations were going on who at great personal cost to themselves surrounded Muslims, held hands and let them pray in safety. I think about Christians in America who when they discovered that you need witnesses to execute someone went to the courthouse in sackcloth and ashes and blocked the doors so witnesses could not get in, so someone could not be killed, so there was the possibility of redemption. And when they were arrested and removed, they held a worship service in the intersection of the city so that no one could drive through. And when they were arrested and stopped there, they blocked the entrances to the freeway. And they went again and again and again because they said, we are people of light. And there is a vocation to be the morning star, the sign of the dawn, the sign of the new creation. That's our vocation. That's who we're called to be, people of light. Here, very importantly, 
that God says through this text, I do not lay a burden on you. This is not to weigh heavily, but to bring light and hope and encouragement. Hear that as you ponder. So may you be people of light, people who discern, who have that framework of what is good and what is evil, so you look for the flourishing and not for the withering of things. May you be people of light who hold on even when it is really hard, knowing that you are not alone. And may you be people of light who bring light into the darkness, who reflect the morning star, which is your calling and mine. Amen.